Hello, and welcome to Cheer Up, Buddy, the Sad Man Movie Podcast. I'm Tom. I'm Riddy. This week we're talking about It's a Wonderful Life, the 1946 American Christmas supernatural drama produced and directed by Frank Capra. Riddy, how are you doing? I'm okay. We are recording this post-Thanksgiving, so I am stuffed with food. Um, It's also a good time to watch It's a Wonderful Life. Tom, how about you? I'm doing okay. I'm surviving the wild wasteland that is the jungles of Florida. Uh, as I told you beforehand, I made it 10 days before somebody told me, fuck you. So I think on average, that's a pretty good ratio for this state as it currently is. So uh, I guess I can't complain too much. But uh, yeah, had Thanksgiving with my parents for the first time in several years. It was a nice change of pace. Um, and if I am clear on the custom in Florida... In addition to the turkey, you have uh, iguana, right? Is that part of it? You know, it's funny you say that. I Every time I come, I've been home in the past maybe 10 or 15 years, there's usually this giant-ass iguana that suns itself in our backyard. And I hadn't seen it at all this visit. And I was on a walk with my mom the other day near the, near the beach, and we stopped at a bench by this church. And I mentioned how I hadn't seen any iguanas yet. And she's like, what are you talking about? There's one right there. I turn around, there's this giant, maybe seven foot iguana just latched to the side of a church wall, just sunning itself. So they're still here, but I guess they're maybe starting to die out some, which is not what I expected. Because usually uh, when they got released here, they have no natural predator. And this is almost exactly like their natural environment. So they've just been thriving and striving for about the past 20, 25 years down here. So it's kind of surprising to not see them on a regular basis anymore. Do you think you woke up in a society where Jesus is an iguana and that's why you saw him at the church? You know, now that you mention it, it was sort of uh, an inverted uh, cross-like pose. It wasn't the <laughs> traditional T, but it, you know, it did have its little arms out to the side. It was kind of maybe at a two o'clock angle. So maybe it was the, the iguana Jesus and I just did not take the time to give it the proper worship. Iguana Jesus is going to be very mad at you. I feel like Jesus is not supposed to be angry, and I think that would apply to Iguana Jesus too, but uh, what do I know from 12 years of Catholic schooling? <laughs> fairly, uh, I fairly didn't learn the same messages that most American religious Catholic followers are practicing nowadays, but let's not go into that tangent quite yet. Sure. How about How about George Bailey, on the other hand? Do you think there's an iguana George Bailey out there that's kind of helping ever, all the other iguanas get by and helping build uh, build church walls for them to also sun on in South Florida? Do you think that's a thing at all? Uh, sure. Why not? Yeah, let's go with it. Well, should we just hop into the, talking about this movie? Because I almost feel like It's a Wonderful Life may have more interesting things to talk about behind the scenes than the actual movie. But then I did have a couple ideas today that I think think probably been explored elsewhere but one idea i'm not quite sure if anyone's touched on so i kind of want to i want to get into the meat of this movie so do you have a summary for us for the few people who maybe have not seen this movie <laughs> i thought you were doing the summary i'm so sorry <laughs> I don't oh no no it's okay this. yeah for anyone who hasn't seen this this is a story about a man who gets a vision from an angel to see what life would be like in his hometown if he had never been born and it's pretty ubiquitous around the holiday times. Uh, just interesting factoid about it is that it 
lost its copyright, I think about 25 years or 30 years after it came out. And that's why it was on broadcast television so much in the 70s and became the well-known classic it is today. It was kind of the very first movie to experience that's kind of like our generation's versions of the Shawshank Redemption which I feel like was not popular until it got on TNT every weekend and then everybody saw it eventually so it's uh now kind of an American classic it you know it was not reading through the Wikipedia entry earlier today it was not popular at its time people kind of hated it but now it's considered one of the greatest films in American cinema history so it's got a weird, weird history to it. So I don't, I don't really don't know where to begin. I guess my first thought is, had you seen this before? I was I couldn't remember if we talked about that or not. Um, I thought I had, but it turns out I don't think I have. Um, like a lot of classic films, uh, I knew a lot of the pivotal scenes through cultural osmosis and especially through The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. um, the savings and loan run towards the middle of the movie, uh, the last scene... Um, all of those came up and have been scenes in, in classic Simpsons. And so kind of got it through that. But I knew the general plot. Uh, I knew the general movie uh, kind of walking through it, um, but hadn't watched it. And I definitely hadn't watched it the whole way through. I, there was a number of surprising things for me uh, in the movie. I think first off, just how, how old uh, Donna Reed and Jimmy Stewart were you know, as characters, or not as characters, as, as actors uh, versus the characters they played. And so my question was, couldn't they digitally de-age Jimmy Stewart for these pre-college scenes? Didn't they have this technology uh, did, back in the day? Did you look up their ages? Because I was thinking that there's no way, Jimmy Stewart must have been in his 30s when he's playing a high school student. But did you look that up at all? I didn't. I didn't get a chance to look it up, but like just looking at them, Donna Reed being 18, uh, didn't seem too likely. No, I mean, Jimmy Stewart looked like he was already in his 40s yeah. throughout this entire movie. It's it's uh, it was an interesting take, but at the same time, it's kind of like, well, there's probably a shortage on actors. This is post World War Two. Let's just kind of stick within budget and just make Jimmy Stewart the same character from high school to what what's a safe estimate maybe 40s maybe 30s 40s i don't even know how, yeah, how old george like bailey's supposed to be in this movie in hindsight uh pre-college george bailey did not look like any pre-college he could have been teaching the class rather than being in it yeah. i had a lot of like stray thoughts like kind of throughout the movie uh i did think people dressed quite nicely i did you know regret the passing of those times when uh jimmy stewart was wearing the the very nice tweed overcoat over the tweed jacket. And I guess he also had the vest on. So it was like the full kind of three piece suit going on. Mm -hmm. But my favorite thought kind of throughout the movie was I'm a white man married to Donna Reed and I have four kids and a steady job where people want me. And I have free champagne and a maid and the whole town fixed my house. My life is shit. It was a little confusing because as I was, re I've probably seen this a handful of times and I realized while watching it earlier today that I don't know if I ever told you, I forget that it happened a lot, but I started a movie appreciation club in high school. And I think this was the first movie I ever showed with that club. And that was the first time I ever saw it. You know, it's one of those movies I think you can see at different levels at different points in your life where 
when you're a kid, you kind of realize, yeah, this guy, he fucked up. He wanted to do all these great things. He had all these huge aspirations. He was going to travel the world and be an architect and do this and do that. And then he just, he just fucked up. I won't fuck up. And now the four year old man, like, oh yeah, this is just life. How it goes. You have all these grand ambitions and then some rich asshole just keeps trying to fuck you over <laughs> for years and years. So it was, um, it's definitely interesting to look at now that I'm probably comparable ages to George Bailey. It's weird because I feel like the character George Bailey is kind of a dick for most of the movie, but everyone's yes, like, oh, yeah. hey, George, I love you. You're a great guy. And it's like, I get it because he does, he is very... He does actually do the good thing, but he he's he's kind of an asshole to like 70% of this movie. Yeah, I wish I wrote it down because he had a couple one-liners here and there that I thought were like viciously funny. And I can't remember what they were, though. That, but I wish... I, Oh, I wish I wrote that down, but they actually there were several lines in this movie that were like very cruel. And one of the first ones I had, one of the first notes I have is from the very beginning where it's the uh, unseen angels in the form of stars communicating to each they other. They were kind of cosmos. assholes too, huh? Yeah. The, so the angel that gets sent to earth to help Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey is a angel named Clarence, which uh, the angel Joseph describes Clarence as having the IQ of a rabbit and the faith of a child, which... It sort of it seems sort of like an indictment of people who have strong religious faith, but at the same time, this is a very religious movie at its heart. It's all about not giving up your giving up God's greatest gift, aka your life, no matter how shitty it is. So I don't know. That's a that's a philosophical debate that I guess I don't really feel like having at the moment. I thought about what would we? How would we remake this movie if? Um... They were biblically accurate angels with like a thousand eyes and the face of a man and a lion and a whatever the description is. But I guess he can be an old man too. Whatever. An old man who's reading Mark Twain, which I was trying to figure out if there's any sort of significance to the fact that was it was he reading Tom Sawyer? Yeah, he was reading Tom Sawyer. I was trying to remember if there was any sort of significance between the adventures of Tom Sawyer and. It's a Wonderful Life, but it's been so long since I read it, I couldn't think of anything. So that may be a little Easter egg that Frank Capra threw in there or whoever wrote the script threw in there, and we're too dumb to recognize. So we'll have to get back on that one if we ever do a follow-up episode on things we've missed in previous podcast episodes. Here, Here's a list of our failures. I was going to say there was an image on Blue Sky go, making the rounds a few weeks ago. Um, as we record this, and it had the ages of the characters on Cheers, and I nearly went into some sort of shock. You know, most of the characters on Cheers are in their 30s or 20s, but if you look at them now, they look like they ought to be in their 50s and 60s, uh, and that was always my impression. Frasier, when he started his like his spinoff show, was like 30 something, 36 maybe, and I oh watched God. this as a 40 year old, and this is like, yeah, good God, he's the adultiest adult I've ever known in my entire life and he's younger than I am now which is terrifying oh now that makes me feel like Frazier was an established doctor and owned a brownstone in Boston like his late 20s how the and he definitely know he didn't come from money we see his dad in the Frazier show so yeah oh god yeah, well, I mean, that may, that maybe leads into a, another depressing aspect of this film where big crux of the conflict in this story is about home ownership and the ability to own homes. And I feel like the story <laughs> from, a, what did I say, from 1947? 
1946, nearly the same issues that we're having now where rich oligarchs are controlling all the land and are not really providing enough resources for other peons like us to afford it. So it was a little depressing to realize that nothing's changed. That's how I knew this movie was fiction is that uh, they had the dream of buying a home and some people could actually achieve it. Yeah, the bar owner, the, the Italian immigrant owned a home. Martini, yeah. Uh, yeah, people who can't afford their mortgage payments. George Bailey's like, oh, I'll just get you a couple months when you can afford it. It's just like, man, <laughs> I, I'm i glad that there was, I, I wish more stuff like that existed because, you know, I've mentioned it in the past, I used to mediate landlord-tenant disputes and I was doing that around the financial crisis and I was getting a lot of people who were getting foreclosed on because they couldn't afford their mortgages. And that was always really, really depressing to deal with. So having to see a movie deal with those topics where actually people were shown leniency and mercy in financial situations was like, oh man, I don't know. I doubt that ever truly existed, but it definitely doesn't exist now. Yeah, I I feel like the George Bailey's of our time were like, (laughs) just had the foreclosure stamp ready to go. I did like early in the movie that he was like offered the job after his father died. And he, George Bailey was like, I spit on your high paying financial job. I'm going to college. Um, And I guess also at that time, like he had the money for college, whereas like college wasn't taking on like, you know, decades of debt as well. So um, I definitely had a mystery science theater um, backhanded commentary thing going, especially through the first uh, first half of the movie. Yeah, I feel like this it, it, this movie must be the source of a lot of sociological studies about past American financial institutions, I feel like. It's just such a weird... I mean, really, the movie is all about how terrible capitalism is at its heart. Which... I'm glad America learned that lesson, and now we take care of each other. No, one of the things I really wanted to talk about this movie is that I had heard, I had a memory of it being accused of being anti-capitalist at some point. And so I did a quick read through on the wiki page and I found this excerpt that I was really intrigued by because it reminded me that I did not make this up. But this is a, a paragraph that I cut and paste from the wiki entry. On May 26, 1947, the FBI issued a memo stating... With regard to the picture, It's a Wonderful Life, redacted stated in substance that the film represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources, is a common trick used by communists. In addition, redacted stated that, in his opinion, this picture deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show the people who had money were mean and despic- despicable characters. Film historian Andrew Saris observed as curious that the censors never noticed that the villainous Mr. Potter gets away with robbery without getting caught or punished in any way. And again, as Americans, we've learned so much from this that it couldn't happen today where, you know, let's say a billionaire incites genocide in a foreign country or maligns a expat living in a foreign country calling him a pedophile or anything like that. I'd rather have yeah. Mr. Potter than Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, quite frankly. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, in the context of the movie, it's Potter is only screwing up his town. So it's really kind of localized infection rather than 
totally spreading out. But I think that was such an interesting take that even back then, people saw this as a seditious film, which really, I mean, that is an accurate take on it, I believe, because the villain is a mean banker who's trying to take over the entire town and make everybody his tenant. He like doesn't want anyone to own property. He doesn't, he wants to own the entire uh, means of resources. He, what I think they say in the movie, when George Bailey goes on a, like a rant at him, he says like, you own the town, you own the banks, you own the buses, you own the police. Like you don't, what more do you need? And it's definitely, you know, that's a line that still resonates today. So it's kind of, it's kind of hokey as this movie is. It has a lot of kind of political. I think he needs to, to buy Twitter for no good reason and then ruin it. Oh, what would they change it to? It wouldn't it would be Twitter, then X, and then it would just be Pot, Potter, Pottersville? I don't, what would the Potter banker self-indulgently name it after? Club Potter. Oh, you know what? Uh, Is that a real thing? That makes, that makes me think. I want to jump to the scene where George Bailey's running through town in the version where he never lived. And it's kind of like a small scale Las Vegas. What did you think of that? version of the town i mean uh i i read i think in tv tropes that there was an extended version of that scene or that was scripted uh there's more in the script where they showed kind of the bad side of it but i was like hey this this town seems pretty good it seems a lot more interesting than uh bedford falls um so i was like pro pro screwed up town yeah my first reaction when i saw it was like this this version looks kind of fun there's like nightclubs and and people having a good time which but then i was like oh i probably would hate this if i was living here i wouldn't want to be like around all these like tourists and people it's making like asses of themselves well yeah. I, was gonna, I was gonna say it's not too far from florida but, well uh, fair enough yeah but no it's you know this is another thing i wasn't sure I'm, I'm really jumping into all the things i wanted to jump into right off the bat but sure. i really think this movie i don't know if I was trying to think of every movie I think that this influenced. I don't think we would have the Back to the Future franchise without It's a Wonderful Life. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, because it's like all about their version, obviously, is about time travel and changing the effects of things. But this is just like the supernatural equivalent of it. But it's kind of like when Marty goes and to the future and Biff's casino has taken over the town and stuff like that. It's. It, I wish I had more time to kind of Man, if they more... only knew how accurate uh, Back to the Future 2 was going to end up being. Man. Because, <laughs> you know, Biff is an obvious uh, Donald Trump type. Oh, definitely. Which makes me wonder and somehow so, yeah. Donald Trump time traveled. And I don't know what he would have got to manipulate himself his for his fortunes. Because it wouldn't be like a betting book. Because I don't think he can read. So I don't know. I don't know. He had that copy of Mein Kampf on his bedside, according to uh, whoever, whoever, bleh, whoever, Marla Maples mm. or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, like there, there's a lot of, you know, there's uh, clearly there's a lot of like plot details and movie making techniques that were, if not pioneered in this movie, then popularized in this movie that spread out and, and had a lot of influence in, in film. But it is a very, you know, again, like I, I saw a lot of this film through The Simpsons. So there's a lot of influence there. The, one of the things I also wanted to talk about is that I don't think the 
Ashton Kutcher failed the butterfly effect would exist without this movie either. So we have to thank Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra for that. I don't think Ashton Kutcher would exist um, without this film. So thank you. Well, maybe Frank Capra. Maybe we should should join the 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 contingency of people back in the '40s who hated this movie. Then maybe they knew what was going to come. <laughs> that Ashton Kutcher. Um, yeah, I. I'm trying to think of some of the thoughts that I had as well. Uh, as he was running through that, running through the town, and especially um, as the cop was firing at him, I was like, Jimmy Stewart is running like Sasquatch, and still this cop cannot hit the broadside of like this eight foot tall man running through town. So that was a very much like an, an Imperial Stormtrooper school of marksmanship kind of thing. Yeah, I wrote down in my notes during the the cop just starts shooting him because Jimmy Stewart punched him and run away, but like hadn't committed a crime. They just thought he was being a weirdo, which he was. <laughs> I mean, anybody yeah. anybody that shows up is like, you know me, you, we're best friends. And be like, I've never seen you in my life. Like, yeah, I, they're definitely worth keeping an eye on, like they do in the movie. I don't know if it's necessarily worth like start blasting at them when they run away from you though maybe just let them run off they're not hurting anybody they're just acting like a <laughs> weirdo well i mean he had no way of knowing this but uh jimmy stewart did like 70 percent of this movie he was an asshole and the remaining 30 percent he was kind of a leering pervert so i sort of get it and i did have a couple of notes like when he's like at mary's house like hitting the fence with a stick uh i did have a note saying where'd that go hello mary i'm just stalking your house uh when she's asking what she's he's doing and then um he's at the door and he says like i like that dress and i wanted donna reed to say george my eyes are up here so well, at least you know, he didn't he, say he was looking better on my floor <laughs> he is kind of a perv through especially that first first bit of the movie where he hasn't committed to Donna Reed yet or to Mary yet. Well, maybe, yeah. Well, that makes me think I, sh I we should probably make it take a step back. So obviously the sad man of this movie is George Bailey played by Jimmy Stewart. And we're also, you know, giving him a hard time because he is sort of an asshole through points in this movie, but it's not totally unjustified. So I'm trying to remember all the things that we see because the movie is very clunky in how it starts where it's just like, we're going to show you all the important aspects of this one character's life. There was no subtlety and, to editing at this time in filmmaking. No. So it starts off... Freeze it there, Angel. So it starts off with George saving his younger brother's life after the brother falls in through a frozen pond, which that's not... That wouldn't make him an asshole. Then it shows him working child labor at a pharmacy or like a drugstore where it was one of those all-encompassing stores that they had back in like, this would have been what, the early 20th century, I guess. So he's working the counter as an ice cream scooper, but then he's also a runner to deliver drugs, like not as a drug runner, but like medic medicinal oh, drugs. Oh, he's a drug runner, all right. Yeah. And the pharmacist is drunk because he found out that day his son died in i guess the world war one or from the spanish flu i wasn't quite sure it said he died of the flu somewhere but so this pharmacist's sons died he's drunk he accidentally packages up poison instead of the medication that a sick kid in town needs george Helpful, sees helpfully it. labeled poison on the bottle <laughs> yeah very it's super subtle 
But George is like, what, maybe 12, 13, maybe? I mean, he's definitely a little kid still. Yeah. And, you know, he goes to try and help his dad, get advice from his dad, because there's a sign in the store that says, Dad knows best. He goes to his dad's office at the at the family bank that they had started. The dad is getting chewed out by Mr. Potter, the villain of the story, who's the richest man in what they say, I think they say he's the richest and meanest man in the county, which we go mostly redundant, but what am I to say? Uh, the dad's getting chewed out by Potter because because the dad is being lenient on people's home loans. Young George yells at Potter, old guy villain, saying that his dad's the best guy in town, which, you know, it was, it's always nice, I guess, a kid sticking up for his parent, but at the same time, it's like, kid, you should read the room. This is not a situation, like, wait outside. This is not, you're not going to make anything better. He also so forgot he go, why he was there, too, it seemed like. Yeah, he definitely did. They don't bring up the fact that, hey, dad, I saw the pharmacist pack poison. What should I do? So he goes back to the pharmacy. The pharmacist, the drunk pharmacist gets the phone call that the drugs weren't delivered yet. He sees George, starts beating the shit out of George. And he's like, so you casual child abuse. Yeah. So child labor, child abuse, you know, good old days. The, what was, will happen in 2025 if uh, the world continues falling apart? And the guy eventually realizes what he did and thanks George. And then I'm trying to, then we get the leap to Jimmy Stewart where was he getting ready to go to college and yeah I think he's like four years late to go to college but he is suiting up and packing up and ready to go to college finally yeah and then he has goes on he's in another meeting pertaining to the bank and he gives this really strong speech that convinces everybody to not foreclose on the, the family bank but oh Oh, no, no, I'm getting things out of loop because that came after his dad died. He, yeah, he. I so think what, this he was, is where he's ready to go to college, but um, he. Uh, what happens? Like they do the dance, else. which is yeah. Like he was going to go. He, there was something else before that, though. Like he was going to go to Europe or take a cruise, and something happened. I can't remember what. Oh yeah, it? he was going to take his trip. And then was it the dad had a stroke then? Was that what the first kind of? Oh, yeah. He was flirting with Mary um, after the dance. And then someone drives by as he's sexually harassing Mary and like keeping her bathrobe. And uh, he, uh, I guess, leaves her in a bush and goes to uh, where his father has or a, presumably, uh, you know, home or the hospital or whatever. Um, and then the next scene, I think, is... Um, them at that 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 meeting with the board for the savings and loan what are we forgetting then because there's something else that came before the high school dance where he meets mary again who as children whispered into george bailey's deaf ear that she loved him forever as a small little girl which okay um no i think that's the first thing i i mean i could be wrong i i you know whatever but i they he goes home they have dinner his brother sexually harasses the black maid um and then for That's dinner right. he goes to the dance and then from the dance uh where they fell into the pool um they're walking home and she's wearing the robe and he's wearing this uh number three striped turtleneck that looks a little ridiculous it, on him 
It's a it's an old school football jersey. That's about how football jerseys used to look back in like the nineteen. No, but he's like fifty seven, and um, yeah. So he uh, he he looks a little ridiculous in the high school outfit, is what I was thinking. And they're flirting, and then he someone drives by and tells him his dad is dead. Stroke? I don't know. Stroke. Yeah. What did you think about? You know, obviously, I was a little creeped out when somehow her robe mis- magically fell off, and it was in his hands, and so she's hiding naked in a bush. But prior to that, that lasso the moon scene—that's one of the more famous moments of this movie. What did you think about that? Like, did that resonate with you at all, or did what did it seem too hokey, or what did you think? I mean, can't it can't it be all of the above? It was very hokey, um, but this was what a nineteen forties movie so unsurprising i mean i'm still sort of getting over the shock of donna reed and jimmy stewart trying to play high school students so i think that was a little bit of it um it was a sweet scene it was nice like it's a nice little setup for their uh romance going forward but it's also you know a little difficult knowing where this film is going to to look at george bailey in this situation and be like donna reed loves you and you've had a high school sweetheart and you're going to be upset that this is how your life goes. And it's a little, and he's like, you know, early in the film, he gets that um, suitcase that his boss at the the apothecary or whatever bought for him. And he's like, I'm going to all these places. And then we find out later that really he's just going to Europe. And I, I just want to say, George, honey, like Europe is not that big a deal. Like um, well, it was back then though. It was I still, mean, I, you know, yeah, sort of, but like, you had to take uh, a boat to get there. That sucks. <laughs> but it's like, it's you know, you're you're going to London. They still speak English. It's not that big a deal. I mean, I get it. But he he mentioned all these like exotic sort of places, and I would be like George, like Europe. Come on, not that much. All right. So I, I looked it up really quickly. So Jimmy Stewart was 38 or 39 when this was filmed, and Donna Reed was probably around 25. So at least she was somewhat closer but she was yeah, in the ballpark I mean, all i know is that as a as a recent 39 year old i would not have passed as a high school student having living down the street from one there's no way i'd fit in i'd be the steve buscemi in 30 rock saying hey cool kids <laughs> we are older than jimmy stewart was in this movie and he still looks like he could be our father so you know that's a funny thing about this movie too it's like apparently he's like the hottest shit in town every girl is swooning over him there's that one blonde who's trying to get with him for about 15 years and i made a note to myself i must have been born about 60 years too late because of a, a tall scrawny man that could have worn a suit that looked like a like a parachute on him and having all the <laughs> local town girls swoon i would have been like the cat's meow or whatever bullshit expression existed at the time so it's really one of those moments where it's just like man i should born not have been born time. in the 80s i just was I'm not meant for this decade. Give me the Donald Trump time machine and let me go back in time. <laughs> I I did have a note thinking like, you know, those high waisted tweed pants he's wearing, like you could pull off that whole look and he would have been, uh, as you said, the cat's meow um, back in this time frame. I've been trying to find high waisted pants for years because I had one pair, maybe it came with a suit, I think. It wasn't even super high-waisted like back in the day where like grandpas used to have pants up above their belly button. It wasn't even that high. Yeah. But they felt so much more comfortable and I felt like it didn't feel like my pants were falling off nearly as often. And I'll just say a tangent. 
to give people a visual if they don't know me, one of my friends in college did not realize that I had no hips or butt. And so she the reason she thought my pants were always saggy was just that I was like, that was the look I was going for. I eventually had to explain to her, no, I just have no pants that fit my freakish body where I have no waist or butt. I have nothing to keep the pants on except a super singed tight belt. So and if nothing He's else, I think on the your clo- belt, man. <laughs> oh God. There were a lot of Simpsons references. I was trying to remember the the famous scene where I guess it's was it uh Black Monday with the Wall, Wall yeah, Street yeah, yeah. crash? So when everybody floods to the bank trying to cash out, it reminded me of the scene in The Simpsons where Moe's like, What's my money doing in your house, Joe? and just starts a big ass fight. So I totally understand why you felt like you'd seen it before because so many of these scenes had been referenced or parodied in things that we grew up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to bring this one up, even though it's a little out of, no, I'll wait till we get there kind of plot wise. But um, yeah, like basically at every turn, uh, George's dreams are getting thwarted and he sort of sacrifices his wants and needs to, you know, take over the the savings and loan um, to help out people um, to do that kind of thing. Um, He meets Mary again in her house and what happens like his mom sort of suggests that he should go talk to mary and he like wanders around town and meets up with violet oh, well, well i just remember the crux of that scene is that george's brother is coming back to town and george is excited because that means he can finally leave and go yes. to college because his, his brother, brother can married, take over he, the family business he's got a job lined yeah. up but that's the that's what sabotages george's hopes and dreams yet again is that his brother shows up but is he, the moment he gets off the train, he has a woman with him. He's like, this is my wife. She, her, her dad runs a big company. I'm going to work at the company. And you just see George's face just collapse because he's like, oh, God, I still can't get out of here. And that's kind of what motivates him to go see Mary. Partially, it's the mom meddling, his mom meddling, just being like, you need to find a girl, George. He's like, I don't want to get married. I want to go travel the world, which. You know, it's it's a viable, you know, viable goal to have, I guess, because what at this point he's probably twenty five. <laughs> Character wise, yes. Yeah, I, I do have a couple of thoughts here. One is, um, I forgot at the beginning of the movie he tells Violet and Mary that uh, he's gonna have a a harem or two and have three or four wives, and I was like, is George yeah. being a secret Muslim? Is he one of us? Um, and it reminded me. I was going to say, is he a I secret sent... swinger? <laughs> Maybe both. But uh, I sent you an article about um, uh, that was from HardDrive.net. That was like Marvel heroes, MCU heroes ranked by how likely they would be to save me a Muslim. <laughs> and Peter Parker is number two. Like he lives in the uh, Brooklyn. He probably saves twenty Muslims a day. Um, he probably donates clothes at Eid. Uh, Peter Parker's an honorary Muslim, mashallah. So I was like, George Bailey, secret Muslim, I love it. But when George's mom is like talking to him about Mary, there was this girl at our college, this Turkish girl, whose name I will not mention, but I think you know. And my mom like came for some, like she was cooking something for like some like, you know, whatever Muslim thing. And that girl was like helping out and like putting the food out and stuff. And my mom was like, why don't you go talk to her? And I was like, mom, if I could manage that, it would be the coup of the century. Like if I could figure like how to like trick this girl into dating me, like that would be the the greatest heist I've ever planned. 
essentially. I so. think I know who you're referring to. I can't remember her name, but I think Good, she came. I'm into, not going to say it on mic. I think she came into the writing center once when I was working as a writing tutor, and she wanted help with an essay. And she was so attractive. I think I had difficulty talking. I think we're talking about the same person. <laughs> I I think it must be. Uh, I think it must yeah. be. And I was like, Mom, if I had that figured out, I wouldn't even be in college. <laughs> like, yeah, we'd be George Bailey of our hometowns, where everybody's swooning over us, and just we don't we don't want any of it. We just want to go work on an oil field in Venezuela or the Yukon, <laughs> like an idiot. What does the gap in Rome have that the gap in New York doesn't have? George Bailey, come on. <laughs> Um, well, you, you see, the, the European sizes are smaller. It's, uh, it makes you feel like a bigger guy. <laughs> um, so he shows up, you know, he goes into town, he meets up with Violet um, back in adulthood. And then um, he asks Violet out in the weirdest way possible. And Violet's like, no, you leering pervert. I'm not going to walk 10 miles barefoot to go. No, it wasn't even that bad. He's like, let's go walk in the grass and then go up to the waterfall and see it in the moonlight. And it was just like. Just a very naturalistic date. It wasn't terrible. I mean, it was really a stupid idea, but it was not but like... Violet's like, it's 10 miles to the stupid thing. Like, I'm not walking all the way there. Are you, are you oh, kidding me? Oh, sure. I mean, I figured that... But yeah, I did enjoy the fact that when he sees her, she's super excited to go on and like, try and hang out with him that night. Then they're yeah. talking in the middle of a roadway. And by the end of yeah. it, there's like 50 people just pointing and laughing at him because he wants to go <laughs> on a night hike. That was my fear, like through much of college. Like if I ask someone out and like, there's going to be like a crowd of people just showing up out of nowhere, pointing and laughing at me. So, Well, it made me think about when I was dating early on in my time in Colorado, I feel like several women enjoy the fact that I did not suggest going on hikes as dates, which... I'm sure it was very common, which makes sense because, A, why would you want to go to somewhere secluded with someone you don't know from a dating app? Yeah, that's creepy as hell. And also, yeah. it's like, you're going to get, like, sweaty and gross and have to, like, try and have conversation, small talk with someone. Like, that's a terrible date idea. So if anyone's listening to this and they need dating advice, just keep it simple. You know, don't do anything. I may do that a couple dates in if you have a good rapport with somebody. But don't try and go on a hiking date with somebody right off the bat. What are you doing? George, George Bailey, come on, man. Especially a night hike? That's some psycho shit. Well, he also looked like a leering pervert, sort of on, on that, like, highway media or street median. So um, that was the first time I was like, he kind of looks like a weird perv. So, um, But you know what? He probably, I think he was drunk at that moment, too. I think oh, they kind of glossed over that fact. But think about it, because he, he had just come from his, the party for his brother, which was a homecoming, and then turned into a wedding celebration. Yeah, And, you know, he's devastated the fact that he's another kind of punch the gut telling him that he can't leave yet again. So, yeah, he probably That's is fair. loaded during all those scenes now that I think about it. Um, so he does. That maybe explains. I have a note. Uh, he goes to Mary's house and, like, can't get into the gate um, when he's finally invited in. And I have a note saying George doesn't seem like college material when he's trying to open the gate to Mary's house because he really can't do it. So I, I will house. defend him yeah. there just because I have experienced gates like that where it's just like, where the hell is the stupid latch? Like, sometimes you just don't know where it is. Um, and so they hang out. Uh, Mary gets a call from George's friends, Sam Wainwright, who, you know, looks like he's going to make it big. Well, he's also been pitching woo on Mary. Everybody thinks the two of them yeah. are going to get hooked up together because they went to college 
or they, I don't know if they went to college together, but they both went to college and then spent time in New York City. So everybody kind of assumed that they were going to get out of town and live their life somehow. I wonder and, if the plastic scene from, uh, um, uh, what's that movie? The Graduate. The Graduate. Uh, if that came from this, because they're, uh, Wayne Wright sort of uh, is talking to George about making bank on, you know, making plastics from soybeans and, and George decides that's not, that's not how he wants his life to go. You know, they stop talking to Sam on the phone and uh, they have the grossest makeout scene in maybe all of cinema. George kind of starts gnawing at, at Mary's face. Um, and I guess I have a note here saying that I guess George never learned to make out because he never went to college, but it was uh, right disturbing, wasn't it? Isn't it, mate? Um, so that was that was a tough one to, to watch as he nod on Donna Reed's face. Well, I like at that point they were openly hostile to each other too. So I enjoy the fact that all it took for them to immediately and silently reconcile was just to get their faces next to each other, like yeah. an inch apart. That's all it took for these two to get like immediately so horny to like I love you absolutely, even though we just had this big fight because you're a dickhead. I mean, there, there was a sexual tension fight too, right? Like there was some of that sort of in there as well but yeah no i know what you're yeah i i i do i have a note saying that people in the 20s sure talk close to each other um from earlier uh i don't remember where that what came exactly but they were talking close and yeah it didn't take much for him to like basically bite her face well in, in george bailey's defense he is deaf in one ear from the <laughs> he got from saving his brother's life in the frozen water so it makes sense that people have to get close to him to talk because that's the only way he could probably Fair hear enough. them. He's a lefty, can't go right. I wasn't expecting this. I was not expecting to be, I wasn't anti-George Bailey, but now I feel like I'm like firmly in his camp defending this poor man because he's kind of like a justified asshole because he doesn't, like, nothing really does go right for him except that he gets this like really, really, you know, bona fide woman to fall in love with him and be with him even though he's kind of like, kind of a perpetual loser and it's not always his fault but i mean like he's got a bad he's got a, he's got a bad attitude skip yeah but like you think about it his like you just said his friend that was trying to court mary goes on to become like this rich but he, plastic he industrialist. Was offered, like the ground floor of it and it's and i have this note later when they're in uh what's it called uh, uh bailey field like that yeah, housing subdivision that he's created. Mm -hmm. um, and Sam comes in and he's got a new car and driver and he, you know, he does his weird catchphrase, hee-haw, and then drives off. Hee-haw. George kicks his own car door. And I'm like, man, the guy offered you like the ground floor. It reminded me a little bit of like, is it Breaking Bad? Um, it is Breaking Bad, but like where they yeah. offer uh, Walter White, like they, they, we find out like, I guess like, two or three seasons in that uh, he has a friend from college where they were going to make a company and the company became huge, but Walter didn't join for whatever reason that I can't remember. But I, I felt the same way. Like, you know, sometimes you, you throw the dice and you decide something and it, it would have been a lot better to like, you know, decide the other way. And, and he could have done it. I don't, I mean, I don't know. Like that was his decision, honestly. Well, you know, that's like the crypto of his day. We all could have gotten rich <laughs> off uh, Bitcoin and dog dog coin if we had been savvy enough with it. But, you know, I mean, I, you I mean, these ape NFTs are not going to help me retire. I'll never understand why anybody thought 
those would generate money at all. And I feel like anyone who does not understand why the tech industry should not be idolized at all should read up about that because that just in and of itself displays how incompetent that industry is. The people running it, I'm sure they're very good at the tech component stuff, but everything else, I would not trust their judgment on anything. Um, it's very, and I'll, I'll, you know, I, I have worked and been working in the tech industry and it's a really sad thing for me where, you know, when I was in high school, I was like, tech is going to like fix the world. You know, we're going to, it's really going to be something. And in a few ways, you know, it has, I probably wouldn't have majored in Japanese, for example, like if I hadn't had the internet and wasn't able to like, you know, perhaps illegally download anime and Japanese, Japanese movies, but man, Tech fucked up the world way more than I thought, like, humanly possible. And so, you know, like, I was working as a designer and, like, I'd get, like, messages from Facebook recruiters um, in the last, like, you know, five to ten years. And I would always, I had, like, a form response to anyone recruiting from Facebook. And you'd always be able to tell because they wouldn't say the company, but they'd say, like, a, a notable social network company from Menlo, in Menlo Park. And I would say, like, is it the Facebook that incited a genocide in Southeast Asia and the same Facebook that blamed its own users for its security problems? And um, they'd be like, yes, that that's the company. And I'd be like, no, thank you. Um, so <laughs> I probably talked myself out of many a job, but um, yeah, it's like these people are morons. <laughs> well, that's, well, it's funny you mentioned that because one of the questions I was going to ask you was if you ever turned down any job offers on moral grounds because you mentioned yeah. it earlier where there's a scene maybe about halfway through where George's dad's already died and he's been running the family bank for a while. And one of Potter's, Mr. Potter's employees says that this that this guy is legit. He knows what he's doing. He's building good quality homes for a lot cheaper, selling them for a lot cheaper than he should. He's helping people own homes, which is taken away from people having to rent from your shitty mm -hmm. rental properties. And so they try in essence to buy him out, which I think the offer was like 10 times the salary that the George Bailey character was making on his own. Mm -hmm. And at first he's like really giddy about it. And then he shakes the guy's hand and immediately is like, it's like uh, Macbeth's wife, the blood stain on her hands versus like the moment there. He's like, what am I doing? And he turns down yeah. the opportunity just because he realizes that this guy and the work that he does is reprehensible and takes advantage of people and he rejects the job offer. So I was curious if you'd ever done that. I think it's funny that we got to there without even intentionally trying. So yeah, uh, maybe How about you? Have, maybe you, have you turned down jobs on, on moral, uh, moral grounds? Uh, two come to mind. I... I interviewed with a, um, I think they call themselves a law firm, but that's being too generous. It was a law, they specialize in disability law, but it was one of those companies that has like daytime commercials for people who are Ugh. disabled and stuck at home and watching TV. Yeah, I didn't realize that until I got there, but mm -hmm. their interview was at a giant call center where it's just like maybe 50 rows of, it was a lot. I was going to say 50 by 10. I was going to say mm -hmm. 500, 500 callers seems a much, which probably was, but like it was vast. Like it was this giant, uh, it was like, it was like a former grocery store. I think too, it was in a shop, a strip mall coincidentally in South Florida. Like I was, I was living in Atlanta at the time, 
but the interview was in South Florida near where I grew up. So I flew home for the interview and it was in a strip mall. And I think it was a former Publix or a Winn-Dixie. I think it was like a former grocery store that they'd emptied out and turned into a call center. And I went and I kind of went there not expecting to ever work with them, but I kind of just wanted to see it through because I was in a really frustrating job situation at the time. And so I went and I had like an interview. They took us out to lunch. Oh, there was multiple candidates there too. So it was me and I think two or three other candidates. So they met us in person. Then they took us to lunch. And then we had to have an adversarial hearing, which is not how disability hearings are held on a federal level. Like it's just a judge. Uh, it's an administrative judge, a expert, like a, a, what the hell were they called? It was like a, someone who is an expert in professions that are like job capabilities. So like not a lawyer at all. And then it'd be the claimant. And if they had an attorney, their attorney representing them. But we had to have a, like this mock hearing, like an actual trial where one person would have to advocate for why this hypothetical person was disabled and one person had to argue for why this person was not disabled. And so we had that. And at the end of the day, they're doing like one-on-ones with everybody. And the guy was like, you know, if, uh, blah, 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 you know, if we make you a job offer and then he stops, he's like, well, I'm just going to be honest with you. We're going to offer you the job. And so I was like, oh, okay. But I was like, it was really soured on me. Just the way that they treated it, like mm-hmm. a lot of disability, like they had a reputation of taking on pretty much anybody who called them and then a week before a hearing they would review the medical records and then decide whether the case was viable or not and if it wasn't they would just drop people immediately and not really give them any recourse and just kind of like fuck them over as far as even having a chance of filing for disability so i really didn't like that the other one is a lot less interesting it was just a job for uh examining mineral rights for uh properties in colorado for like i think it it had something to do with fracking and it was kind of like trying to screw people over so uh this this energy company could frack under their house their homes and i was like i don't want to do this that's like fuck you i don't i i would rather these people not have to worry about giant pipes getting inserted under their their grounds risks messing up their their homes so those are the only two that came to mind Hmm. long-winded and not very interesting i'm sorry (laughs) no no no. it's i mean i think it is interesting and i it leads me to this question that i marked superman versus goku which is a terrible shorthand but you know superman american superheroes as a general sort of thing uh don't kill their villains and maybe batman is a better uh you know example of this but if batman just killed the joker how many lives have would have been would have been saved Versus someone like Goku, who does not tries not to kill his villains, but if it comes, you know, worst comes to worst, there he's killed villains before, um, and they've come back any number of ways. But sometimes you have to run the business such that it makes money, so you can keep doing the business. And I know that this is a very, I feel like I felt kind of icky writing it as a you know kind of anti-capitalist, but sometimes if you are like. You can't run the business as a charity sometimes. And this is what's stopping George Bailey a little bit. And I wondered if you would like thought about it or like if he had just charged a little more money to the people he's helping build homes, then he could 
loan money to the next person more easily and like he could keep it going he wouldn't have to worry about this like black friday or black monday situation he finds himself in as we get to this point in the movie or or things like that i kind of interpreted the way he approached it is like yeah he could have tried to get more money but the people he's helping that would have been like trying to squeeze blood from a stone is that mm -hmm. i think that's the expression right where it's yeah. just like these people have limited resources he was helping them out to the best of their capabilities and he was giving them the benefit of the doubt like he was letting people borrow money with no set time frame for uh, yeah. reimbursement and I mean, like realistically yeah it was a terrible business model i think in modern terms it's more it was probably more akin to like a non-profit that kind of helps people get established and yeah yeah, yeah like generous terms so i'm definitely more pro that but yeah i mean it's difficult it's difficult because i think there's historical context that we're probably not privy to for how this was working and sure. i think these smaller banks were probably more common at the time at least i i was under the impression that that was more of a thing where it's like banks were more localized to the community whereas now it's pretty much like major conglomerate yeah yeah like big nationwide banks like really i guess the only way you can get kind of what's going on in this movie is a credit union which yeah i know a lot of people are very fond of i had not a negative experience but i had a i definitely was with like credit union for a while was like this is more annoying than good so yeah it's I really went... sad i i won't name the banks for credit unions but like i definitely also was of the of the mindset that like i should be in a credit union rather than a bank you know for all these reasons but then like the multinational bank like has a much better app it lets me like deposit checks like through the phone like you know in their app and stuff like that and the credit union didn't have that and it's like well i mean it's not great but like you know it's kind of the same thing that i'm saying here like the uh through their chicanery and you know financial bs like the multinational bank do things that the credit union can't hope to do you know the credit union that i had recently more recently joined like didn't have an app i don't think and like their site would be shut down like basically anytime i tried to use it and you know couldn't deposit checks through it or anything like that and it's like well this is not helpful to me at all yeah it's been so it's been almost 10 years now so i don't remember why i joined the credit union and then eventually switched over to a, a it's a it's only a, it's an e-bank i hope that's not doxing myself but i find that the easiest thing i've ever done because yeah it's all app-based I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to talk to anybody. It makes my life so much easier. So as a social anxious introvert, it's really ideal for me. So uh, any if my particular bank is listening, we're happy to sponsor you. I don't mind you. Um, but yeah, man. No, can't see I'm, it, but I'm making the money money hand sign. Come on, bank. I'm do, I'll do it near the microphone so that people can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm looking through my notes and a lot of the questions I had are like, these are two kind of like heavy or sad questions to ask. So it's kind of like, a, I mean, you can. Like, we, we, have we ever shied away from the heavier, sad questions? No, no, that's true. That's true. It's like, and I guess this really is a sad movie. I mean, it seems I don't when I think of it, I don't necessarily think of it as being too heavy, but realistically yeah. it is. I mean, it. It takes a while to get there, but the famous part is all about whether this guy's going to kill himself or not, which is, I was trying to remember, I don't think this is the first suicide we've had. Oh, no, we, or was it? I was trying to remember if this was the first suicide movie we've covered so far. I mean, we did cover the Suicide Squad, so 
Uh, no, we haven't. You mean we're um, some kind of Suicide Squad podcast? <laughs> I'm just checking. I'm trying to check our uh, our list, and maybe we can edit out the me going into my podcast app to like see our thing here. Uh, let's see, Life Aquatic, The Exorcist, Haunted Mansion. Haunted Mansion kind of had it. The kid um, almost killed himself in in a way. Yeah, yeah. What We Do in the Shadows, Lost in Translation, World's End, Eight and a Half, to this point. Um, no, I think people had mentioned it, and maybe the Haunted Mansion came closest, but I don't think we've had anyone get up to the bridge before Frank Costanza's lawyer could stop them. <laughs> Is that Frank Costanza's lawyer? No, no, no. I, I, there's a very similar scene where this lady in Seinfeld is going to jump off and, and Larry David shows up in a cape. Oh, and, I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's been a lot of Seinfeld on in the house, but I can I can keep it. I can keep it moving. I feel I feel um, confident in my abilities to to bring us more Superman versus Goku style analogies. Uh, I will say uh, he marries Mary. Um, oh, hey, I didn't even see that. Um, and as oh leaving, God, I didn't either. Yeah, yeah, even there. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> there's an insight for all of you. Um, and they're leaving for their honeymoon, and it's you know the Black Monday situation. And my note is, what kind of tool marries Donna Reed and then goes back to the savings and loan? Um, and loan has six ends because that's how I was feeling as he did it. Um, <laughs> he goes back. There's a crow, his uncle's crow in the savings and loans. I, I'm pretty sure uh, present day federal regulations disallow that, but I, I guess back in the day. Um, and then uh, people want their money back, as in that famous Simpsons scene. And George Bailey's like, can't you understand what's happening here? Uh, you know, Potter's trying to buy the whole town. And in today's climate, I feel like the uh, the bank uh, customers, I guess, uh, are, would be like, hell no, we don't understand and we don't care. But he uses, I think, his wedding money to like pay everyone back, um, mm -hmm. keep the keep Potter from buying the savings and loan. Um, and then he goes back to Mary, who's uh, done up the the abandoned house that she had her eye on back uh, way back when they were college students. My note for that was George Bailey walks in and says, you sure keep an awful house, Mary. So uh, but, you know, they have a nice little married life. And I think the next scene is uh, one of my favorite in the movie. Evidently, they give a loan to an Italian family um, with the name. Mm -hmm. The, the the father's name is Giuseppe Martini, which is seems like a slur, um, but he says, I own my own house, and he is the most minority what do you mean? minority. We, don't you remember our friend Jack Rum and Coke? <laughs> it wouldn't be Jack, it'd be Mario Rum and Coke, or like, like Eight and a Half, the other two most Italian names, uh, Guido and Mario, and then there wasn't a Luigi in it too. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the good old Mario Spaghetti. <laughs> Uh, but my note was this Italian guy is the most minority minority in this movie. Um, well, I think and, that was probably more meaningful at the time than we recognized. Yeah. I think back then, like Italians were probably still really kind of like. And he brings the goat he, into the car and stuff. And yeah, like definitely yeah, like, like, there was like this sense of like, like this the is the most ethnic person we can group. find. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, but I think that may be one of the scenes I was kind of talking about where there's historical context that we're maybe missing out on. Cause I think the oh, fact no, that I, he... I mean, I definitely saw yeah. like, yeah, like this is actually, and I will say like, 
I looked at this movie through sort of a, a, a racial American lens. And so that leads to a lot of like, you know, I'm George Bailey and I, I married Donna Reed and my life sucks kind of like philosophy of it. And there definitely was like, you know, his brother sexually harassing the black maid was not cool by today's standards no. for sure. But this movie, I think, does try to be inclusive in that there, there are actually black people in it, um, which is not always the case. And then this Italian family here, um, even if they're sort of played up for laughs, like I do think it does try to be in, in sort of inclusive. And and there is like a sense of of um, you you threw out the the word communist like sort of off mic, um, but I do think there is like a, a brotherhood of man thing sort of going uh, in the film. Um, so yeah, I, I think you're totally right. And I think that is like, that's what kept me from like completely snarking on the movie was that like, there was this undercurrent of a George Bailey being an asshole, but actually like also sort of being a good person. And then also that being an inclusive vision rather than I'm a good person for the white waspy people that live in this town. Yeah, exactly. I was really hoping, I was really eager to hear your perspective on it because of that. Cause I mean, it's, it's definitely... I can't remove myself from being, you know, someone who arguably kind of looks like George Bailey. I'm definitely going to be coming from it from a perspective different from yours. So I was really curious to see how it would kind of hit with you in regards to that. So that was, that's very interesting to hear because that's kind of how I was interpreting it, but I wasn't sure if that was like how yeah. it would be. I mean, that's seen, how I, like, again, removed from the time, how I saw it, but there was like a, a kind of a, an accent on it when, um, you know, they they set up the the martinis in a nice little house and things like that. And I think one of the subsequent scenes, or I know one of the subsequent scenes after, I don't know if it was right after it, but that job offer that Potter makes to George Bailey after Potter figures out that Bailey giving these people homes is taking away from his, you know, slum empire, essentially. Yeah. Um, and Potter says you're like playing nursemaid to these garlic eaters, which I think is, is a slur at this oh, time. Oh, it's got to be. Yeah. And and I'm like, how is that a slur? Garlic is great. And like these waspy yeah, well, like people are eating mush. And then that led to me writing donuts. I told you no ethnic food. <laughs> yeah, I I had a note about some of that scenes where uh, I forget if it, if it was around that scene specifically. I made a note that said George Bailey's speech about helping people have a home, helping improve the community on the whole is still applicable today. And I think that's true where, you know, I've lived, if you live in like an apartment building where it's all rentals, people definitely don't give a shit as much as if it was like a, I've lived in a building where I owned a condo that kind of sucked too, but it was not as nearly as bad. Like no one in that building vomited in the, in the elevator and left it for two days. So there is some value for like communal improvement via home ownership, which I think, I don't think people have entirely glossed over that back today, but I think that's something that is sort of lost on the fact that so many of our generation have to rent that it yeah. does sort of kind of create this feeling of separation or disinterest. It's like, well, why would I care? I don't own this. I may have to leave in a couple months if my landlord goes asshole mode so like i think that's yeah. an, i think that's an aspect of the housing crisis that is sort of getting missed out on and that there is and you know maybe that does kind of fall back into the political 
situation of the world too, where, you know, people don't feel invested in their communities, so they don't fight for them as much. And maybe the ones, you know, the, the really adamant political people are the ones who I wonder how, I wonder how much home ownership factors into political allegiances right now. Like, I wonder if people who are, but then that's a chicken and the egg type scenario. And I was going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to stop there. Cause I'm going to fall into like a political science podcast if I keep going and I'm not educated or smart enough at the moment to have that conversation. I thought you were going to say you were going to fall into an alt-right rabbit hole and end up sort of the next Jordan Peters. But what was I going to say? Like, I'm less like, you know, that meme, this kind of smart, walkable, mixed use urbanism is illegal to build in most American cities. Like I am pro that unironically. Um, I do think like there's value into living like in an apartment building, but I do think people should own, should be able to own their property if that's what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And the real difference is like building equity versus like continuing to pay, you know, Potter the rent every month and not owning anything. And I totally get that. And that's like a very strong subtext to this movie. Like this, or maybe even sort of the main theme other than George Bailey's kind of uh, direct sort of your life is actually wonderful kind of thing. But yeah, like I, I do think, and and so that sort of kind of got me on this, this thought process of, of, you know, brotherhood of man to, mm-hmm. uh, for lack of a better term. Um, I did think there was a couple of interesting points from that discussion with Potter and Bailey. One is it, there's a very sort of like American superhero trope going on where he gets offered everything that would like, fix his life and I, i'm really thinking of spider-man here and i can't think of any like specific comic book arcs or stories but i'm sure it's happened like a thousand times where peter parker gets the offer that you know you can go back to your life totally normal you can date mary jane you can do whatever but you wouldn't be spider-man anymore and you know kind of everything falls apart and spider or peter parker decides not to take that offer even though it's sucks being spider-man and so george bailey has that moment where he's like you know that temptation of christ or like buddha has this thing where he's you know tempted by you know buddhist demons of hell and and temptation and things like that and uh avoids that as well so like it's a very i'm sure joseph campbell talks about it and so george bailey has that moment with potter and as you said he he turns it down Potter mentions that he's 28, and I if, I have a note saying if George Bailey is 28 when he's talking to Potter, I'm 67. Oh, God, and then, yeah. <laughs> and then finally, Potter's job offer, he's like, okay, you know, talk about it to your wife. And I just really thought it's interesting that it's a to, to your wife versus with your wife. Oh, sure. And, yeah. Tell your wife you're taking the job or not taking the job. And I, I'm like, uh, I don't know if that would fly today. And then... Um, Mary gets it, it. They have like two children at this time, and then they have two more. And I just have a note saying they're called condoms, George Bailey. <laughs> I don't, I wasn't sure if I didn't get the religious, well, I got the religious aspect of it, like in a general sense, but I couldn't tell if they were Catholic or not. But I, was I like, think it's a safe come assumption. Come on, man. Yeah, I think given, you know, especially the background, um, it is. And so they, I guess, probably we're not using condoms but it's man if you can't pay for your two kids already maybe a little bit of family planning here would go a long way i mean what are you going to do though are you going to risk <laughs> putting on a rubber just so it kind of you know or do you just want the full pleasure man i mean it's worth the risk 
uh, don't I listen to me. I was trying to, to like bring this. You know, we've been a little bit uh, uh, <laughs> horny in the last few episodes, and I was trying to like uh, keep it keep it from there. But yeah, no. Um, well, I, I, I can take a U-turn to something you're bringing up the superhero aspect. There was two comic MCU things I wanted to kind of touch <laughs> on that this okay. movie made me think of. First okay. off, do you think this is the first famous multiverse movie? I brought that up too. This is the first multiverse crisis is what I have. And second, jumping to the end. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, the movie ends. George... So what makes him on the verge of committing suicide is that the bank, his uncle misplaces $8,000 and a bank inspector has come to evaluate the solvency of the bank and now they have no money. And so George is going to kill himself because the bank's going to go under and he's most likely going to get charged with a criminal, uh, with criminal financial whatever. So that's why he's on the precipice of killing himself. And the movie ends with all the people that he'd helped out over the course of the movie coming together and giving him the money that they need to keep, you know, keep him out of jail, keep the bank going. So that made me wonder, was this the origin of the Avengers in-game portal scene? Where every superhero comes through? Everyone comes back and shows up at the last minute to help you defeat the enemy. Um, I mean, if you're asking me honestly, like, probably not. I think it's just, A, it's exciting when, you know, the whole town kind of comes out. At the, so I think it's more like a dramatic, like, this is how it's going to have to be to make the drama work sort of thing. If you're asking me seriously, um, if you're asking me unseriously, I'm pretty sure I saw Black Panther uh, in, uh, in It's a Wonderful Life, putting down some uh, money. Uh, it was, he put them. down some Wakanda dollars, and he's like, yeah. "You're going to need to convert these." <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, it's we're recording right after Thanksgiving, and I've been watching Mystery Science Theater 3000, and there's a movie in it where uh, they pick up a hitchhiker uh, because they think he has a lot of money, uh, and then the, they go to like they go to a restaurant, and the hitchhiker they want the hitchhiker to pay for all the meals, and he pulls out the money, and he's like. Well, it's a hundred, but it's Nepalese money, so I don't know if it, they'll take it or not. And it kind of like reminds me of that, like Black Panther trying to somehow be a bum and pass off Wakandan money. Let's see. Um, but I feel like, yeah, like I, there's a sense of drama um, from that. And I, well, there's a, there's another sort of connection that is very similar. I don't know if you noticed, but the cops, I think the cop, well, the cop and the taxi cab driver are named Bert and Ernie. And I wondered mm -hmm. if Bert and Ernie, the ones that I know and love from Sesame Street, are named after them. According to Wikipedia, no. It's just a no. weird yeah, coincidence. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at uh, a more important wiki, the Muppet Wiki, which also says no. <laughs> Does that have a fun name or is it just the Muppet Wiki? It's just the Muppet Wiki. Ah, oh, damn it. But it has a very disturbing looking Muppet turkey as part of the logo right now so and i should have i wish i was more organized because there's things here i need to talk about yeah, so, so in the alternate world yeah mary is an old maid spinster working at the library mm -hmm. i hated that i hated the fact that because he never existed she never met any other man like obviously men were interested in her she looks exactly the same in this universe so i don't understand why she would necessarily are you, are you saying she should have married one of us 
Uh, I'm not going to say that. Uh, just because of, I know my significant other has started listening recently, so I don't want to say <laughs> that. I don't, so I don't want to say that Mary Bailey should marry me. But at the same time, she is a librarian, so I mean, I can't say that doesn't do it for me. Well, she was like a real like firecracker, like as like a. Uh, I guess that's what they would say at this time. I don't know that for a fact. Uh, I really wish there were some uh, Mr. Burns uh, slang I could pull out right now. But I'm trying to remember the ways my grandmother would have described her. Maybe <laughs> she had she had pep. She had moxie. moxie yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. But I mean, she was a college-educated woman at the time. That's pretty rare. I would I would yeah. think. Yeah, and she had a smart mouth, and so it's. I feel like she, you know, maybe and she restored she an get... entire mansion on her own. I mean, that yeah. house they moved in was a, like, it was, you know, it was a shithole and she turned it into an actual house and she made that, she made that painting about George lassoing the moon from yeah, the, she was talented. the pitching woo scene. So like, she, yeah, she had a lot going on for her and she, you know, she went, fell in love with this kind of dopey, good hearted guy, but I mean, she had options. So it's kind of sad that in this alternate universe, because George Bailey never existed, she never loved anybody so it's kind of like that's kind of a disservice to her i mean yeah, i get exactly. it from a storytelling point of view but at the same time i was like come on come on well, guys of like, this scenes, uh you know obviously that one uh scene which i think it 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 took off too far from it from this movie to be like a like a one-to-one -one sort of parody but where homer finds out like his guardian angel uh has to appear as colonel clink uh and um, they see what it, life would be like for, oh, I think it was the one with uh, Mindy at the power plant, but yes. they see what their lives would have been like if they, Marge and Homer never got married. And mm -hmm. Marge is president and, and uh, Homer and Mindy have a mansion or playing tennis together. Like, um, you know, I, I guess in, in the late 40s, like women's choices were be married or be the spinster librarian, but it does seem like a disservice to her character to uh, have her be the spinster librarian. Like that was her only, that was one step away from being the cat lady living in that dilapidated house without any renovation. Yeah, definitely. I'm so glad you mentioned, I was, it was killing me trying to remember which Simpsons episode did the, what life would have been like alternative. And I couldn't remember for sure, but you're exactly right. It is the Mindy episode. So that's I'm sure they go to that well multiple times, but that's the one that, that came to mind. I, that's the one I was thinking of. So thank you for saving me having to go through. If I can, if I can tell the listenership episodes. in Atlanta, um, Tom and I, and one of our mutual friends went to Simpsons trivia. And even though those were four people teams and we were only three people, we came in second place. Oh, I forgot that. I was thinking you were going to say we got our ass beat because more often than not, when I went to that Simpsons trivia, I couldn't even hold my own with some of those people. It was very disheartening. But we, I think, uh, friends of the show, Zach, um, three of us together made the dream team, even though uh, we were one person short. No, you're right. I, forget. I think that's the only time I ever got any house cash playing the Simpsons trivia there. Yeah, what else did we want to talk about here well here's well we haven't touched on this yet where a lot of the george bailey thing is kind of like the plight of being the elder child of a family because he mm -hmm. kind of had to take on all the responsibilities once the dad died and the younger brother like reaped all the rewards like he got the brother got to go to college brother became a mm -hmm. war hero the brother's like the big big wig around town because of that so i was going to ask you 
did you ever have to experience that dynamic since you're the elder of, of two siblings, whereas I am the younger of two siblings and definitely benefited by being the second and kind of having my sister pave the way for me. And I get to kind of reap the benefits of learning from her mistakes. In, in yeah, um, I think probably I remember and I can't remember the comedian who said this. And so uh, I'll just preface it by saying this, you know, this is not a thought I had, but like for parents, your first child is kind of like your first car and you know you're going to put some dents in it. Like uh, you're going to bag it up a little bit more than, than the next car. Um, and I do feel like that's kind of the way. And so like uh, my brother and I are both, I guess, now married to people that are not Muslim, not from our culture or whatever. And that might have been a big deal for our parents. And it was probably a bigger deal for my parents when I did it uh, before my brother did it. Um, and so I think I did pave that way for him a little bit. Um, I remember at our college, like my brother, I think when we were seniors or sometime, my brother went to a party in like Atlanta and like couldn't get a ride back. And so like one in the morning, I had to go pick him up. My car was like full of shit because like I was like moving out of the dorms or something like that. And so like he had to sit on a bunch of stuff and uh, I ended up taking him to that diner that was open all night and it was like all cops and hookers. And so um, <laughs> that kind of thing. And then. Um, when I moved out to San Francisco, my brother moved out here like three or four years after I did, maybe a little bit later. He stayed in my apartment for like a year rent free. Uh, we had like an extra bedroom for a while. And so um, he stayed out here. And so, you know, I think those are the times where it felt like either like I paved the way for him or I had to like sacrifice something to like help him out. And so I don't know if it exactly answers your question, but those are the times that I felt like, or the ones that came to mind where that like that came up. Oh, sure. I mean, I think that's as good an answer as anything. I, I was just curious, you know, I, I don't know that dynamic. I just know for me, it was stuff like my sister and I started at the same elementary school and she went through until eighth grade, whereas mm -hmm. in fourth grade, one of the teachers there was like, no, the school sucks. Go somewhere else to my mom. And my mom put me in a better school, but we ended up at the same high school. But like, you know, we, well, the outcome was mostly the same. So like there were some things where having her kind of figure stuff out in by proxy, my mom figuring stuff out as far as child rearing, I definitely kind of, yeah, things were a little like, easier yeah. for me in some regards because my sister had to deal with more shit than I did because of the inherent yeah. unknown with things like that. Yeah, I think that's what that comedian was saying is that like as a parent now I'm seeing it from not that I have a kid, but as an older man now sort sort of seeing it from the parent side where like, you know, friends of ours are having kids, uh, individual friends of mine are having kids, having kids. And they're like, we don't know what to do. There's now this like being in our house that like we don't understand in the slightest. And it's like, you know, I had one friend who recently had a kid and he's like, I understand the dog better than I understand this new child that is in our <laughs> home. And like, yeah, like I get it. In the first kid, you're going to put some dents into that one, just given that like you don't know what you're doing in the slightest. And I'm there's probably like a, a thorough through, through line to this. And then like the community aspect of this movie and like it takes a village and like all this kind of thing. But given that it wasn't like one of the major themes of the film, I'll, I'll, I'll back off that. Sure. Well, one of the minor themes of the movie is the futility of planning for your future. 
Are you mm -hmm. anywhere near where you thought you'd be when you were in college? Because I am not. No, absolutely not. Yeah, I am not. I thought I'd, uh, there was a pretty good chance I thought I'd be living in Japan at this point. Um, and that has definitely not happened. I didn't think I'd be doing the work I'd be doing. My life has not gone to plan. And I think one of the big sort of revelations for me, and it didn't come till adulthood, was like, and like adulthood, I mean, like, probably after law school, was that there's no point in planning for anything. Honestly, there's no point in planning for anything. No. Um, cause it does not work out the way you think it's going to, to paraphrase somebody, um, Luke Skywalker in the last Jedi. Um, yeah, I always hated the, the concept of five-year plans. I always thought those were so stupid and pointless. I, I can think of one person that I've been friends with throughout my life who had a very set plan for herself and mm. everything happened exactly as she predicted. Like I still remember. I drove, I was one of the few people in my friend group freshman year that had a car. So like right before winter break, I was about to drive back to Florida. And so I was driving a bunch of people to the airport who were people who either lived too far away to drive or didn't have a car. And I still remember my one friend, she had it all laid out. She was like, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to major in this. I'm going to get a master's degree in this. I am going to marry this person. And we are going to live here. Was it Donna Reed? <laughs> it was Donna Brazil. Um, oh. <laughs> no, you know, you'll know who it is if I tell you. But yeah. she, but she made it happen by some, you know, whether it's willpower or fate or what. She nailed it. Like she made everything happen that she wanted to happen. And maybe that goes to me, maybe not having enough of a plan. But I think other people who you know, everybody has some symbols of a plan, but I don't think anything really, it's like you said, there's just too many variables to so many things outside of our control to really yeah. think that we're going to make it happen exactly as we want it to happen. Yeah. There's this, uh, and I've kind of, well, there's this movie, uh, Ozu movie, and he remade it once. So there's two versions of it um, called Uki Gusa, which is uh, translate to duckweed. And the reason the movie is titled that is that the main, and we should put it on the, the film list for this one. Uh, but like the main character is like a man who sort of floats through life, like duckweed sort of floats through, you know, like in a, in a moving body of water, duckweed just like sort of floats down the river. It doesn't like hang on to anything. It doesn't stay in one place. Um, and I've kind of seen my life like that. And I don't know if it's a, it's a product of not enough planning or too much planning, but whatever it is, I personally cannot, pull it off. Um, and that is like the thing that had to be like, uh, hammered into me like over and over again. Cause I kept like, even law school, I was like, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to graduate. And then, um, you, I think missed this, but, or maybe, I don't know, caught the early part of it, but like 2012 was the worst year to come out to be an attorney, like in 40 years, I think I remember reading and I've had to like say this a few times in recent, uh, recently, like, you know, interviewing for jobs and stuff like that. And, you know, I didn't find a lawyer job and I had to like decide what other skills I potentially had to like find a job that I got paid money to do. Um, and, you know, I think in, in college, like given that I had like um, a few Brown friends who were like dead set on medical school, several of them like kind of planned it out. And to the extent that I know, like did what they wanted to do, like their plan sort of worked out, but 
it wasn't that common and it definitely didn't work out for me. So sure. I don't know. Like, yeah, like I, I, I try not to plan more than like, honestly, like six months in advance and, and honest, you know, kind of to myself, like more than a few weeks in advance, like, cause I, I really don't know what sort of thing is going to happen um, to upset those plans or, or to change like the whole thing. So. Yeah. I, I think I mostly restrain myself to like vague goals and even yeah. then, I usually don't even tell anybody anymore because I still have this mentality. It's like, well, if I put it out into the world, I'm going to jinx myself immediately. So I, yeah. I still have some weird, dumb superstitions that are, are, have no bearing in reality. But I still have this mentality. It's just like if if I apply to jobs, I don't tell anybody until at, like after the interview process if that happens. <laughs> like I, I, I play so, so many things very close to the best out of some weird superstition. I know it frustrate several people in my life but i i just keep doing it because it mostly is harmless it's not i'm not hiding any big dire secrets but i know people yeah. think i'm being a little too a little too closed off in ways but at the same time it's like this is what makes me feel comfortable it makes me feel less like a failure when things don't work out so just let me have this i like that we've mentioned like several people from college now um, and like the three people that listen to this podcast will know exactly who we're talking about, even oh, though we haven't mentioned most definitely. Names. Yeah, no, it's uh, we're like hiding the names yeah. as if they're like more than three people that listen. Well, we're still living under the the belief that eventually people we don't know will listen, which may be yeah. happening based on some of the numbers I'm seeing, but I don't oh, know nice. for sure. Um, so, yeah. I should I should log into Acast and see what the numbers look like. I guess if that's where they're from. But less depressing question. So <clears throat> we didn't talk about the high school dance scene too much, but at one point <laughs> during the during the course of a Charleston dance contest, and not Charleston the city, it's the Charleston the dance. Uh, the floor opens up and reveals the pool underneath, and everybody falls in. So my question to you is what would the modern equivalent of the Charleston contest be? And I couldn't really think up modern dances. I wrote twerking, the Dougie, some other youthful bullshit. So I was wondering if you had any idea of what the high school reunion dance contest would be in modern times. Well, I mean, this is a problem because my note for this is, is this uh, in brackets dance contest, how we, white people passed the time in the 1920s, question mark. So that's like a, you know, and I did have another note that I wanted to bring up here. Like, um, this movie did seem like a what if PG Woodhouse's Bertie Booster was less charming, um, especially hmm. in this early part. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I don't know. Like, I feel like, so I've been watching a lot of like Cheers and um, recently watched a lot of 30 Rock, um, just sort of a rewatch of 30 Rock. And I had seen Cheers, like, because my parents watched Cheers when it was actually on TV, but hadn't actually watched as an adult. And so seeing a lot of these like old classic sitcom tropey sort of like, here's a contest and the winner, you know, saves the bar or whatever. And I think like dance contest, last person standing would be one of these, I don't know, school dance, like prom king, prom queen. I'm surprised they didn't have that at the at the dance and I guess it tells you something about the times that like any doofus could come back and show up to the school dance like George Bailey is now four years out of college and he's like I'm just here 
so yeah, like I think like dance contests, like last person standing is is like the modern or modern-ish equivalent of it. I don't know if you can do that. Oh, that one lady, um, you know, when like the Wii was like the Wii Nintendo game system was like the big deal and like people were trying to buy one. And so I should laugh, this is terrible, but like the they, they had a con- radio contest and who could hold their pee in the longest, like I guess playing off the oh, name of the no. Wii. And a lady died, like trying to like get that <laughs> and it's like maybe that's sadly every day we get further from the light of god but maybe that's the modern day equivalent but even that's like 20 years ago right like well we we all need our angels to come show us what life would be like if we held our pee too long i guess yeah well that that actually transitions into well this will probably be my last question for you Mm-hmm. So the the little rule in this movie is every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Mm-hmm. What would be your modern equivalent? My the thing I came up with was uh, every time an unsilenced phone makes a noise in a movie theater, an ancestor gets tortured in hell. <laughs> yeah, uh, a demon graduates to the next level. Um, yeah, and again, of the many stupid things that have been keeping me busy um, the last like several weeks. Um, the Dungeons and Dragons based game Baldur's Gate and then kind of just like nerding into Dungeons and Dragons, like not actually playing it, but like, I guess learning about it. Cause I've always been like, that's a nerdery too far for me. Um, and so I do think like, whatever it is, like it's like a demon from Dungeons and Dragons, like graduating to the next level of uh, demonhood. But that's a good one, um, especially in a movie theater or something like that. Um, I was trying to think that something like chime based or yeah. some, some sort of noise equivalent of what a bell means. Because how often are, do you hear an actual bell anymore? It's all going to be some sort of digital noise. So that was kind of the, I was trying to think of like a text message notification or any general phone notification, something like that. I was thinking, I mean, it's probably the same thing, but I was thinking the like windows, air message sound. Oh, the blue screen of death. Not even the screen of death, but when it's like, here's an error message, like the little dialogue box, and then it makes oh, that the, like the don't kind of noise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that one. That one's pretty annoying. Um, and so I can only think that uh, that's probably one of them. Other than that, I can't tell. Like maybe someone's voice on like TV. <laughs> like every time you hear Gilbert Godfrey on TV now, like some old person, the oldest person. The Guinness Book of Records oldest person on earth dies. Well, it's a good thing Godfrey's dead. Maybe that's why people are living longer. Is he dead? Yeah, he died a couple years ago. I know I his career is dead. But Ching, going toward the jugular. <laughs> yeah, take that, Godfrey. Every time Jenny McCarthy is on TV, the oldest person on earth dies. Yeah, Godfrey died in 2022. Oh. Too bad, I guess. I mean, I feel. <laughs> Not to get off on a huge tangent here, but his career essentially died when he made a joke about the Fukushima disaster. And on the one hand, as someone who loves Japan, like I sort of get it. But on the other hand, like his whole job is to make jokes. And so I don't really, doesn't really make sense to like cancel him for making, I mean, I don't know. This is my alt-right rant, I guess. I don't know. Um, Yeah, we'll have to get Daniel Tosh on the show. Yeah. Um, Andrew Tate is out on bail, right? We could get him. But yeah, like I sort of, I, I sort of feel I bad for him. Okay. Like, 
Uh, and that's what I want to talk to you about. But um, yeah, like I kind of feel bad for him. Whatever, uh, whatever. I was going to say that I had started because, you know, we do it. We do doc review. And so I listened to podcasts during it and I've run out of like the complete guide to everything, essentially, and started listening to Behind the Bastards. Have you listened to this podcast? A few times. I have a friend who's a big big fan of the show so he'll he'll kind of sift through the interesting ones and if yeah. one's really particularly good he'll send them to me or tell me yeah. to listen but otherwise i don't listen religiously yeah i started listening to it and the first one that i picked up there's this guy that sounds just like me like a like and not like me like i sound like in my own head like like me that i sound like when i have to listen and edit uh, <laughs> one of these episodes like this nasally college nerd voice and granted he's like a lot better at podcasting than i am but i was like for a brief moment i was like holy shit did i just put on our podcast and i'm listening to me now but that was my only only like whatever takeaway from that was like that and the fact like in fact i listened to all their andrew tate episodes and he sounds like not a great human being which i knew but i didn't know the depth of it until <laughs> until i listened to those so you think if andrew Tate was on a bridge debating whether to jump in and kill himself or not. And an angel came down. The angel would probably push him. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. It's fine. Good, good job bringing it back around. Every time uh, Andrew Tate mentions how to make money is, is a way, you know, an angel. Uh, well, no, a demon gets its wings. Yes. <laughs> I think that does it. I have one thing, but I don't really want to bring it up at this point. It's not really interesting enough to, swing to, back around for i'm trying to see if there's anything else that i also had in this movie pulled everything i didn't like that the black piano player in pottersville was like one of the indications that the town's morals had like completely fallen apart oh sure jazz music and yeah people enjoy themselves that was the worst thing that you could have back then oh i did i guess um you know we talked about violet his like veronica betty i don't know which one archie ends up with but like um the the blonde as opposed to the brunette he ends up with right exactly and i didn't understand this from the movie or, or but in alternate pottersville um or pottersville i guess um it's not the alternate of pottersville it is pottersville she's yeah. supposed to be a prostitute i was wondering if that's what they were getting at but i couldn't <clears throat> tell necessarily but that makes sense that they would have to kind of code yeah. it yeah, it totally makes sense that they would code it. But like, yeah, like I didn't pick up on that from the uh, thing. And neither Wikipedia or TV Tropes uh, mentioned it. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. And it's a little... You know, there's a line at the very beginning when they're little kids and George is working yeah. at the drugstore and young Veronica comes in and young Mary is there. And yeah. they're both little girls. They're maybe like, what, seven or eight or something. And... And the Veronica character says, I like him. And Mary says, you like every boy. And she says, what's wrong with that? That kind of, that yeah. seems a lot more ominous now with the alternate reality sex worker yeah. future. That's, that's, I wonder but if it that kind was, of that, sucks that, that, I wonder if a, that like, hints. yeah, Violet can't date a bunch of guys. That's fine. Like if you're, I mean, I hate the phrase ethically non-monogamous or whatever, but like, if that's what you want to do, like, do it. That's fine. But also, like, the only thing keeping her from prostitution was George Bailey. Uh, same thing as you mentioned with, you know, Mary. Uh, it really, the movie really did 
short shrift with the uh, the women characters, unfortunately. Yeah, but what else is new with these movies that we watch? Yeah, true. Yeah, I think that's everything. I had a couple of things, like, but it's not worth going back for those. All right, well, let's let's start wrapping it up with the question that we use to wrap up every episode. What can we learn from this sad man, George Bailey? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you have for me, Tom? The little note that I wrote for this was that this movie does give people hope that even in our mundane, ordinary lives, hopefully somehow we're having a positive unseen impact on our world or community, which I feel like most people don't even give a shit about. I gave I told you an anecdote. I told I gave you the the in-depth anecdote about why somebody told me fuck you in yeah. down here in Florida. And I do think situations or incidents like that are fairly common and it was something that didn't need to rise to that level. Mm-hmm. And I think it's cuz a lot of people don't even consider just like the minute impact that those small interactions that really are innocuous and don't have any real bearing could potentially have on somebody. So, well, I think about it again, you told me the anecdote and I'm like, that anecdote could have been a lot worse. Um, And, you know, stuff could have happened that that would have been bad for people and or dogs. And because you're a responsible person, uh, it didn't happen. And so you're, I mean, I guess, for really looking back through like history, uh, that situation wouldn't have been set up because you wouldn't have been there, but it, maybe it would have happened with someone else or something. And uh, maybe this is the best uh, of, you know, a bad situation. So I don't know. I guess maybe a takeaway from this movie is to incentivize not being a dickhole if you don't have to be a dickhole. Because like even George Bailey is sort of an ass sometimes, but it's like he's the kind of curmudgeon with a heart of gold. So you don't have to be a, happy cheery person just don't be a dick about it and help out where you can i guess yeah his uncle was really a fuck up huh i forgot to ask that but oh yeah yeah i mean <laughs> that guy the, when he when george bailey yells at his uncle after he had a massive fuck up i was like that guy deserves it so it was you know <laughs> uh he didn't yeah no, i was gonna say george didn't have a mood disorder usually when he burst out at somebody he was kind of Except when he yelled at his wife. But most of the times when he yelled at somebody, he was usually justified. Yeah. Um, so along the same lines, uh, I did have a line saying, like, he, how, why is he so depressed if he's married to Donna Reed? Which, uh, in a more sort of um, a broader sort of context, is like, it's so much easier to see what you don't have in life than what you do have in life. And, you know, there's so many people that... Um, can't get relationships or you know pine for people that they can't have or um can't have children or uh don't have a house or you know any of these things that uh george bailey had but it's like and i understand like i'm i'm prone to this as well so you know i i made fun of george bailey through this and i kind of agree with my assessment but I do understand that predilection for sort of like looking at the downside of things other than the the upside. And, and you know, it's true that he was looking at a pretty bad situation, you know, committing fraud and maybe having to go, and go maybe having to go to jail, Sam Bankman Freed style, I guess, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, to date this episode. 
Um, but you know, he's 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 yelling at the children. He's yelling at at Mary, and those are all like sort of positives in his life. And there are so many people that have had to go through much more than that. Um, and so you know, to try and figure out the way that you emphasize the positive things um, rather than sort of fo focusing on the, the the negatives that are that are kind of coloring your perspective. Well, try I'll try and uh, broaden our listenership by saying it's really tough being a white man. <laughs> you just don't know what it's like, man. It's tough for us. Nobody likes us anymore. Everyone blames us for everything. You know, George Bailey is, he's right. He's the upset. first like, good boy, good, proud boy. <laughs> good. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that wraps up our episode on It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, that's, that's, that title's debatable, but you know, it, I think it, I think I, I understand why people still watch it every year. There yeah. is a, there is a charm to it. I know the final sequence where everybody comes to help them out, you know, that, that made me tear up a little bit. So, I mean, there's, there's still some endearing, enduring messages that still kind of can apply to yeah. modern day. That's, that's an impressive feat. Wait for our 2024 remake. It's a life. You mentioned that. But I did, did I did read... say that joke? Oops. No, no. There was an attempt, and it may still be in the works, to do a sequel for this movie. Oh, and God. it would come out like, this was maybe under 10 years ago. This was thrown yeah. around. Truly, we live in the Pottersville timeline and not in the Bedford Falls timeline. It... I can't argue with that. I... You know, there's a bridge nearby. I'm just going to take a walk to it right now and see what happens. Golden Gate. <laughs> uh, we, but don't, don't jump off that bridge until we bring you the next uh, December movies, which I think is going to be a little more positive than, than this one. So we'll see you next week, listenership. Yeah, do all the action stuff. Like, listen, subscribe, tell your yeah, friends. Yeah, do the podcast stuff. Whatever. It's a wonder. <laughs> Tell your it's a wonder. It's a wonderful podcast, whether you listen or not. <laughs> Bye.